Hey, well, good morning, everyone. It's just great to see more and more people gathering uh, in the room, you know, with us each week. If, hey, if you're at home with us, uh, celebrating and worshiping today as well, we're so glad you've tuned in uh, as well. Um, hey, so it's important that we have a conversation together uh, as a church, as a church family, about what's happening in our country, what's happening in our world. And the reason it's so important that we have this conversation is because it's so important that we be one of the voices that's heard, right, in this season. Now, I want to say a couple things to frame what I'm about to say. Number one, I am going to mostly read this statement, and I don't usually mostly read. I want to be clear about why I'm going to mostly read. I'm going to mostly read because words matter. And they matter a lot in this kind of conversation, right? So uh, I want to be clear about that. And I want to challenge you, again, whether you're joining us at home or whether you're in the room, to stay with me to the very end Uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, because context matters, And in this kind of conversation, a conversation where people are very entrenched in their positions, uh, context is everything. And so if you don't stay with me to the very end, you're going to miss the context, the whole context for everything that I'm about to say, right? And just as a pastor and as a shepherd and as a leader of the church of God, one of my jobs is to make you uncomfortable, to make you wrestle with things that are hard and difficult. And if I don't do that well, you should probably just sue me for spiritual malpractice, right? Because shepherds should stir up things in their flock um, in the name of, uh, you know, Christ being formed in every single one of us, okay? So you ready? And again, I'm going to mostly be reading. Uh, So the tragic and the unnecessary death of George Floyd has highlighted uh, the racism that still exists in our country. And I want to be clear that as a pastor, what I have to say is to the church family, the church of God, the church in America, to people that would identify themselves first and foremost as followers of Jesus. And as I've prayed and asked God for wisdom, the words of Romans 12 haunt me in the face of the division, the anger, and even the rage that is gripping our nation. And so these words scream out to followers of Christ, and they say this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What I would say to you, my brothers and sisters, is that we must search our hearts and not only confront the racism that resides systemically in our culture, but also that which hides in our own hearts. The answer to the division, the anger, the distrust rampant in our country must start, has to start, with those of us who would call 
ourselves Christians. Christians should be the first ones to point out that all people bear the image of God regardless of race or skin color. They should be the first to remind the world that God demonstrated his great love for all people when he gave his son, not just those of a certain hue. They should be quick to remind the world that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, his gospel, speaks directly and clearly into this issue that we face as a great nation. You know, one of the benefits of growing older is that sometimes you get to see history repeat itself. And you have to wrestle with that and you have to struggle with that. And so it's interesting because on March 3rd, 1991, when I was 28 years old, a black man named Rodney King was mercilessly beaten within an inch of his life by four white police officers. And like the incident with George Floyd, it was all caught on video. And like today... There was great outrage, but particularly great outrage in the African-American community. And later, those four white police officers would be acquitted of that crime, this vicious beating that was caught on tape by an all-white jury of their peers. And this only enraged the African-American community even more. And so when I watch the riots and the destruction that are occurring across our country, I feel a strange sense of deja vu. It feels very, very familiar to me because I've lived long enough to watch history repeat itself. But something is different this time. It's me. See, when I watched the beating of Rodney King back in 1991, I thought what a lot of white people thought when they watched that video. I thought that Rodney King was probably getting what he deserved. That he had probably, you know, resisted arrest, that he had probably brandished a weapon or threatened those officers in some way. And this, my friends, is the subtle poison of racism. Somewhere in the recesses of my mind from way back into my childhood, I'd come to the conclusion, no one told me this. No one said it. It was never stated in my family. But I'd come to the conclusion that black men were dangerous. Now, I never spoke this, right, not to anyone. I wasn't blatantly racist. I didn't hate black people or want bad things for them. I was just so wrapped up in the whiteness of my own world that I couldn't possibly empathize with the problems that black America was facing. I didn't know any black people, and so the outrage that should have been present in me was conspicuously absent. 
But when I watched the murder of George Floyd, I did feel revulsion. Took 20 some years to get there, but I felt it. I felt outrage. And this is not because I'm a better person than I was when I was 28 years old. The reason I felt that is because Christ lives in me and he's lived in me for going on almost 40 years now. And so he's had time to chip away at some of the things I resist. He's had time to change me in a way that only Christ could. It's because Christ has and is changing my life that I felt that revulsion. He has given me a compassion and an empathy that I lacked as a younger man. And this is one, only one of the many, many reasons that I think people so desperately need Jesus. Because in Jesus, we confront a love that loves and accepts us just as we are and right where we are. But he loves us far too much to let any of us stay that way. And I recognize in a way that I did not when I was 28 years old the need for Christians to speak out in the face of racial injustice. I believe that it's, no, I, it's not that I believe it. Let me say that differently. As followers of Jesus, we must not only be at the forefront of the call for justice, a people obsessed with calling out injustice and oppression when we see it. But we have to do it the way we do it. It's so important. Please hear me. We have to also do this honoring the vital and the difficult role that many of our amazing and caring police officers play in our communities all over our great but struggling nation. Listen, I'm not telling you this as a pastor because this is what Brad Davis believes. I'm telling you this because this is what the New Testament clearly, clearly teaches, i.e. bookmark Romans 13, read it carefully. If you are a Christian, this is not optional. You and I must speak out against injustice while at the same time honoring and respecting and loving and encouraging those caring and uh, character, you know, men and women of great character who are first responders, who have so unselfishly sacrificed so much of their lives to keeping you and I safe. Isn't this part of what makes George Floyd's death so reprehensible that the very people that were supposed to be keeping him safe were the ones that resulted in his death. Listen, prejudging all police officers based on the racist or oppressive actions of a few is similar to, although be it less than, the same kind of trap of bigotry that's gotten us here in the first place. 
A few days ago, I read a post by Tony Dungy on what's happening in our country. And as many of you know, Tony was a former coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He's, a very, he's very respected in both the white and the black communities, and he happens to be black. And he quoted Dr. Martin Luther King in saying this, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that resonated with me. Tony also declared that speaking out about racial injustice is not merely the mission of African American churches, but it must be the mission, he said, of all churches. He said we must stand together at the forefront of this discussion and offer meaningful dialogue, not, pla- you know, not uh, uh, trite platitudes, right? But meaningful dialogue and meaningful change. And I couldn't agree more. After all, in the eyes of God, folks, we are one church. We are not, and we must stand as one. And finally, we must remember that as Christians, our enemy is not found in flesh and blood. Our enemy is the evil one, the God of this age, right? And uh, he thrives in an environment of distrust, and every one of us in this room and every one of us in our culture are victims of his lies. Jesus said he is a liar, and he, he'll shade the truth. He'll, he'll uh, warp the truth. He's the father of lies. He's the, he's the very first liar and so things like injustice and oppression and racism those all flow out of the lies that we've all all been told right and so uh, our fight should never be with one another our fight should be against satan and his kingdom of spiritual darkness from which things like racism and injustice flow like a river So in a moment, I want to pray for our country. But more than that, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for me, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray that we as a church would be a source of help and hope and healing and change in our city and in our county and in our country that needs to occur. Listen, it is a work that our God has given to us. And you can pretend in your world of whiteness, our world of whiteness, that this isn't a problem, but make no mistake, I'm telling you as a pastor that it is. And I'm telling you that this is our moment to step up and to make a difference. Christians have to do that in season and out of season. And you and I must not shrink back. And so I'm going to pray courage for us. I'm going to pray conviction for us. I'm going to pray that God would use us and that he would help us. And that we would see good things in our community because we're a part of 
of this community together. Amen? Okay, so let's pray together. Let me pray for me, for you, for us. Heavenly Father, give us courage. Give us empathy. Give us compassion. God, as followers of Jesus, help us to honor and to love those that we disagree with. God, help us not to become so entrenched in our own perspectives that we have no empathy or understanding or compassion for anyone else. God, don't let us be so wrapped up in our small little worlds that we box out what is happening in the bigger world. God, use this environment of anger, even rage, to spotlight the power of the gospel of Jesus. Help us as Christians to frame this issue as a gospel issue for what it is. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take all the distrust and all the anger and all the division and all the rage and that you would bring peace and hope and healing to it and that you would use it to form the image of your Son in each of us and that we as the church would speak well of and represent well your Son, Jesus. So Lord Jesus, we lift you up. We thank you that you live and move and breathe within each of us by your Holy Spirit and that you've not called us to this on our own or by ourselves, but you've placed your Spirit within us, a Spirit of love, a Spirit of power, and a Spirit of self-discipline. You've placed that Spirit within us for such a day, for such a season, for such a time as this. Help us not quench that spirit. Help us to hear his voice and to do whatever he would ask. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so hey, we've been in a series about marriage, and ironically, what I have to say in these next few moments uh, in regards to marriages really applies to what we've just been talking about um, in our culture as well. And I'm going to read a verse. I'm not going to do much review today. I'll review kind of everything next week as we're kind of wrapping up the series um, but I'm getting ready to walk you through a verse. We're going to walk through it in great detail. And as we read this verse together, you're going to go, huh? I mean, am I, am I like in the wrong spot? Because as I read this verse, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with marriage. And I thought this was a series on marriage. And so just stay with me. And as we start to unpack this verse, you're going to get a very clear understanding of how it applies not only to marriage but to what is happening in our culture and in our country right now today so this is in Romans 3 and we're going to talk about a very basic doctrine of Christianity now listen I know that when some of you heard me say the word doctrine your your eyes started to glaze over already but listen, sometimes the word doctrine is super important, okay? Because in this case, it's so practical. 
And this is a doctrine that theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. I'm going to say it again. Total depravity. And in a few moments I'll define what that is. But I want to show you uh, where this comes from and why it's a doctrine, a basic doctrine, a basic understanding of Christianity. So we're going to read Romans 3 verses 9 uh, through 12 and then verses 23 and 24. So Paul is in the middle of making an argument. Here's what he says. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, so a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew, right? So that means everybody, all the people of the earth. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, and there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it would be, I mean, wouldn't the world be a terrible place if we just paused right there? If that's the way this ended. Well, everybody sins, everybody falls short of the glory of God. Nobody, you know, shoots a bullseye when it comes to living their life the way that God would want them to. Everybody misses the mark. Hey, so let's just all eat, sleep, and be merry because tomorrow we die, right? I mean, if that was the only news we got this morning, that would, well, that's what we, where we would be. But it goes on, verse 24. Not only are Jews and Gentiles alike all under sin, not only are all the people of the world all under the power and penalty of sin, but all the people, not all the people of the world, but all of us then are freely justified, right, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, here's why this first matters so much to marriage. Because there's kind of a myth that circulates in our culture. It's a myth that all of us will be indoctrinated in when we go away to college. And it's this myth, it's this idea that um, out there in the world, uh, you know, all of us are basically good people. And that, you know, if we're educated enough, that um, education will overcome the power of good, but at his base, man's nature is good. And all we have to do, and then all kinds of other myths flow out of this myth, right? So therefore, because man is basically good, we hear things like this, hey, just follow your heart. Just trust your heart. You'll do the right thing, see? And there's all kinds of myths that flow out of this myth of the basic goodness of man. Meanwhile, Scripture, God, says this. He says, no, 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 no. I made man, and I know man, and even though man bears my image, that image has been warped by sin. And everything that happens and occurs in our world has been warped and bent and distorted by the power of of sin. Everything and all people have to live under that power. And so earlier I talked to you about this basic doctrine of Christianity, right, called total depravity. And total depravity is this, 
I want to say what it is, and then I want to talk about what it isn't. The first thing is, total depravity is not what it does not mean. It does not mean that people aren't capable of doing good things or good acts for other people. But what it does mean is that usually when people do good things or do those good acts for other people, they're doing it for, uh, for at least in part, for themselves. So, for example, I'm not here preaching because I believe God's called me to do it only, right? I'm here to preach because of the accolades and the admiration that that might get from you. You see how this works, right? Because all of us, when we, no matter what we do, whether we do anything, right, uh, there's usually, we usually do it for self-centered reason. Here's what, here's what total depravity means. It means that I want to do the right thing if it's convenient, but if it's inconvenient for me or it won't get me what I want, I'm prepared to do the wrong thing. That's what, the, that's what the doctrine of total depravity would say, right? That at my core, at my core, I am not basically good, and you are not either. And so when two people who are sinners and sinful, so, well, so let's back up. Let me, so let's talk about this in the context of marriage. It's it becomes pretty clear when we talk about this in terms of what's happening in our culture right now, right? We can see the power of sin. I mean, it oozes through our culture at a time like this. We see how destructive it is. I mean, the rioting, the looting, the anger, right? All of that just bubbling up. I mean, we can see it. It's a, it's a picture of it. Okay, but what does that look like in a marriage? Uh, so here's what marriage is. I want to define it. Marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. An imperfect person. Let me throw some, uh, some other um, adjectives in there, right? Not only are, when you, the day that you walk down the aisle with someone, if you will walk down the aisle with someone, not only are they imperfect, but they are sinful, they have missed the mark of what God, uh, the way that God wanted them to live. They are broken, just like you are. And so, as you walk down the aisle, do you know what you're doing? You know what expectations you're carrying down that aisle? You're carrying the expectation that that person is going to save you. That they're going to rescue you. That, and that they're going to be the new center of your life. And that you're going to live, you know the phrase, happily ever what? Yeah, you're just going to walk down that aisle and they're going to rescue you and you're just going to live happily ever after. And I want to submit to you that this idea rooted in the basic, the ideology of the basic goodness of man, I just want you to know, from a Christian perspective, man is not good. And that explains so much, right? It explains so much about marriage. It explains so much about the way that our world works. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing and so profound and so beautiful. Because God came and lived a sinless and perfect life and gave himself for broken people. Not people that were cheering and grateful that he came. 
but for people who largely ignored him and reviled him. And yet he came and he offered himself anyway. But if you think, like if you come to the conclusion, oh no, 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 man is basically good. You just have to, you know, you just have to educate them out of their badness, right? If you come to that conclusion, it will impact your life in so many ways that are negative. It'll impact your marriage negatively because you're going to expect your mate to be your savior, your functional savior all your life, right? And not only that, not only that, but you're not going to love the gospel. Well, yeah, Jesus came to die for me, but hey, I was a pretty good person. I didn't need a lot of help. And do you know what the Bible says about that? Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, I did. Because I was under the power of sin. And so we have to get this right, that marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. So I want to give you the math of marriage. And when I give you this math, you're going to go, well, why should people ever get married in the first place if that's the math of marriage? And I want you to know there was a time when Jesus was talking about marriage. And at one point when Jesus was talking about marriage, one of his disciples go, well, if this is true, why would anybody want to get married? And you're going to think the same thing when you hear me talk. Okay, but here's the math of marriage. You ready? The math of marriage is this, one sinner, one imperfect person plus one imperfect person, one broken person plus one broken person equals conflict to the second power. I, I was hoping for a more clapping and applause than that, quite frankly, but whatever, right? No, you're sinful and broken, that's your problem, no, right? We're in this together, right? So listen, this is the deal. This is the math of marriage, and it is absolutely unavoidable. So stop it, right? No, you can't just stop it, right? Because that's the problem. We're all under the power of sin. We need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, so because there's just fireworks, because in a marriage when you take two sinners and they walk down an aisle together and they start unpacking their stuff with each other, right, there's going to be conflict. And that's why it is so important that when we fight in our marriages that we fight fair. I'm going to say it differently, but that we fight as friends and not as enemies, because sometimes we go to our corners in our marriages. I've done this in my marriage. We go to our corners. We, you know, we get on our gloves, you know, and we, and we right? And, and, and it's no whole bars. I'm not in here. I'm in here to win. I'm in here to win a fight, right? Listen, and we have to learn to fight as friends, not enemies. This involves things like respect and honor. This involves things like not using universal quantifiers. When you're in an argument with your spouse and you say to them, you always do this, and, and, we've, and all of us have always done that, right? You always do this, or you always do that, or you never do this. The problem with that is your spouse can always think of at least one time that they did. Right? So stop saying always and never. Right? Don't use universal quantifiers. Don't name call. 
Now, here's what's so funny about this. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of calling my wife a name. I'm not going to tell you what name I called her, but I'm guilty. I'm guilty of calling my wife a name in about the last three weeks. So I don't always, so I'm preaching, right? And you, you're probably, some of you are here, if you're like new in church, you're thinking, well, he's the pastor. He probably doesn't struggle with things like me and nothing could be further from the truth. Talk to my wife for five minutes, she'll tell you. <laughs> really, all right? But, but we have to learn how to fight as friends, right? And, and not feel like we always have to win an argument. Listen, when you win an argument, a relationship always loses, and relationships are way more important than arguments are. Way more important than arguments are. So we have to learn to fight as friends, not enemies. But I want to tell you why we're so often tempted to fight as enemies. Because th there's a verse that really speaks to the pain of marriage. And I want to read it and I want you to think about it in terms of marriage. This is something that David wrote about betrayal. And here's what he said. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it's you. It's a person like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng to the house of God or as we you know, as we went to church together. And you know what David's saying here is, look, we were close. We were companions. We were, we were friends. We said, we told each other we loved each other. We told each other we'd always be there for each other. And so when you say things like that to me, I can't even begin to describe to you the kind of pain and betrayal that I feel in the face of what you just said. This is why we so often want to go to our corners and and put our gloves on and fight it out because of the pain of marriage, right? And I think David resonated with that. All right, so if total depravity really is a thing, if it really exists, and we bring that into our marriages and into our culture, right, if it's a real thing, how should Christian marriage offset that? In other words, what should a Christian marriage... Now again, as a pastor, I'm not talking to non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian here today, what you need is our Savior Jesus. That would be your first step. But I am going to talk to Christians, people who would identify as followers of Jesus... And I want to talk about what a Christian marriage should look like. So here's what's so cool. If you're not a Christian yet, like you're totally off the hook. Your marriage doesn't have to look like this at all. But if you're a Christian, there have to be these ingredients in your marriage. And the first is this, repentance and prayer repentance and prayer James 5 so every verse we're going to read we're going to read today in the context of marriage because I think what happens sometimes when we read a verse like James 5 16 is we read it in the context of the church and so it puts us off the hook in our marriages and what I need you to know as a teacher of God's word today is that you are just as on the hook for this in your marriage as you are in your church here's what it says 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other. What? You mean I'm not supposed to tell you that you're wrong and you don't get me? What? You mean I'm supposed to admit that I did something wrong? That I shouldn't have said what I said? That I shouldn't have done what I did? Therefore, confess your sins to each other. So just be aware James comes to the conclusion that we are going to sin against one another. He doesn't have rose-colored glasses on. He's not speculating as to what's going to happen in all of your relationships. His assumption is that we're going to sin against people, and that's going to cause them hurt, and it's going to cause them pain, and that we need to be regularly confessing that to one another. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to embarrass our church. I wouldn't want us to know how many unhealthy marriages there actually were in our church, right? But if you're here today, how many of you would say, don't raise your hand, just hypothetical question. How many of you would say that your marriage needs at least some measure of healing? And I know how every one of you answered that. Almost all of you said, well, I would agree that my marriage needs at least some level of healing. Well, James tells you the way through. James tells you the way forward. Let me tell you something. The times I've heard my wife's sweet little southern voice pray for me, Like when I hear her go to the throne of her heavenly Father and lift me up and lift my, you know, my ministry up and lift me up as a man and a dad, that is so healing. Because sometimes my wife doesn't use her sweet little southern voice to pray for me, right? Sometimes she uses that sweet little southern voice to talk to me. Right? Or, uh, and you get it. I mean, we're, we, all, we all know what this is like. And so it's so vital that I hear her approach, her Heavenly Father, and lift me up. And it's so important that she hear me lift her up. And if you want to cross your arms and say, well, that's, you know, I just don't pray in public, there won't be any healing in your marriage. I mean, your marriage is at stake. Learn how to pray in public. Learn. It's just, right? I mean, listen, here's the good news with prayer. When you're, having, when you're praying, you're talking to God, right? So if other people critique your prayer, you just say, listen, that's totally fine because I wasn't talking to you. Well, I was talking to God, right? So listen, don't get hung up on this. Prayer is just a conversation with God and all of us, All of us, if you're in a Christian marriage and your spouse has never heard you pray for them, this is the first sin you should confess to them. There should be lots of confession going on in the next week in our homes if we're not praying for one another. We ought to repent of that, and I'll talk about repentance in a minute. But this is vital. It's vital that we confess 
you know, our sins to each other and that we pray for one another. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time in your marriage that you confessed, not your spouse's sin against you? See, here's a, you know what's coming, don't you? See, we're all so good, aren't we, in our marriages at confessing our, our mate's sins. But we're, no, we're not nearly as good at confessing our own. So when was the last time you confessed a sin against your spouse to them? Folks, that's the recipe for healing in your marriage. One of the vital ingredients of a Christian marriage ought to be confession and prayer for one another. And so if you're not good at that or you can't even think of the last time you confessed your sin to your mate, you've got a lot of work to do and you better get to it. You better get to it. Because here's, listen, remember, we're already, we've already said, right, all of us are going to sin against our mates. All of us are going to sin against our spouses. So if that's a given, this is something we all have to grow in, right? This is something we all have to do, is learn how to confess our sin to our mates. Here's another vital deal. Oh, by the way, the word repentance, part of what it does mean is the word confess our sins to one another, but it means more than that. It means a change of mind, and it means a change of heart. So when we repent... What we're saying to our mate, and this is so crazy, I know, because what I'm getting ready to say sounds so illogical, but so part of what repentance means is that when we say to our mate, hey, I yelled at you, you know, or no, let's not do it, I called you a name, I shouldn't have called you a name, I said you were just like your mother, right, or I said you were just like my dad, I shouldn't have done that, right, repentance goes an extra mile and says, hey, I know how hurtful that is to you. I'm not going to do that again. Now listen, you're probably going to do it again, okay? But what, at least what you're relaying to your mate, what you're telling them is you matter to me and you're worth changing for. You're worth this. I believe in our relationship. See, and again, they know and you know they're going to probably do it again. But you, you still, part of what repentance is, is not only changing your mind, but changing your heart. You're walking one way, you're living one way, you turn around and you say, no, I'm going to live a different way. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. Here's another vital ingredient, acceptance. Acceptance accept one now again what would this look like because well, see we put on our spiritual goggles don't we and we go okay here's a church commandment no this is a marriage commandment accept one another then just as christ accepted you how are we to accept others how as we want to be accepted eh. What's the answer? Accept one another how? Christ. It's always Christ. Christ is always our example. He is always our motivation. He is always our power. He is always, always, always the way through. And this is why not only will you see a verse like this, you might see, you might say, hey, well, love one another as Christ loved you. Forgive one another. We'll get to that in a minute. Forgive one another 
as Christ forgave you, right? Did Jesus forgive you only when you said you were sorry? Did he just forgive you part way until you come to your senses and fall on your knees and cry and weep and wail over your sin? No. And that's the way we're... This is so challenging, isn't it? Or is it like just me? It's challenging to me, I'm just saying. Yeah, so acceptance, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Listen, I think a huge problem in marriage is that we get so focused on forming our mate in an image that we want to be true of them that we never get around to accepting them for who they are. Isn't it true that you want to be loved unconditionally? Acceptance is the way to that. And it's the only way to that. And some of you in your marriages, you can say to one another, I love you. But you probably can't say, I accept you. Because you're too busy trying to change the things you don't like about each other. Right? This is so big, so big. Acceptance in a marriage Here's the big one. Here's the one we're going to focus and spend the rest of our time on, forgiveness. Listen, here's here's why total depravity matters. Here's why not buying the myth of the goodness of man matters. In marriage, sin, not compatibility, is always the issue. I'm going to say that again. In marriage, it is sin, not compatibility, that is always the issue. Because we're used to thinking, well, you know, we're just not good for each other, right? Well, hey, we're just not compatible. And people can even go to court, right? And they can file something called irreconcilable differences. And what, those, what they're saying in that is nobody's really at fault. We just don't, we just don't fit. Listen, it's... Divorce is not a compatibility issue. It's a sin issue. And sin has to be forgiven. The only way to deal with sin is forgiveness. It's the only way through. And it's exactly what God has done for you and for me. Right? Here's how God says it. Bear with each other. Oh, this is so beautiful. I love that. Bear, when, when he says bear with each other, you know what he's saying? Again, what would this look like in your marriage? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. What would that look like in a marriage relationship, in an engaged relationship, in a friendship, in any kind? of relationship forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another and then here's the kicker it isn't forgive as you would like to be forgiven or for you know it's like look forgive as christ it's not like hey forgive in the way that you think is fair listen if that was the command of the new testament none of us would ever forgive right because forgiveness never seems fair No, we're called to forgive as the Lord forgave us. That's the call. That's the standard. Listen, behind every divorce, every single one is unforgiveness 
and bitterness. You show me two people who part ways, and I will guarantee you, if you dig just a little bit, that is what is going on. Because two imperfect, broken people experience the math of marriage, which is conflict to the second power, right? And they refuse to forgive. Forgiveness is the way forward. When people split, it's not a compatibility issue. You've got to see this. It is always, always, always a sin issue. And sin must be forgiven. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now the alternative, some of you know the alternative, right? To merit, to uh, forgiveness. And there's only one. It's bitterness. It's bitterness. And, I mean, do any of us, I mean, look, let's just think about this for a minute together. Do any of you who are, do any men in the room want to become a bitter, angry, resentful old man are there any women in the room that want to become a bitter angry spiteful resentful you know woman with just all these grudges to bear i mean i know that none of us in the room want to be those kinds of people and forgiveness is the only way forward and here's what's so fascinating about bitterness Love this verse, Hebrews 12. Some of you have heard me preach on this verse before. It's one of my favorite verses to preach on. It says this, see to it. So he's talking to teachers of God's word, leaders in the church. And he's saying to leaders in the church, see to this. Make sure this doesn't happen in your church. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And so those of you who've heard me preach this before, you know what I'm about to say. Because some, when we read this, the NIV translate it, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and, right? It says, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So we think these are two separate thoughts. I would submit to you that these are not. Uh, respectfully, I would submit that the NIV did not get this quite right, that the two thoughts are meant to be tied together, and that the word that should be inserted into that sentence instead of the word and is the word by or through. See, Greek pronouns are very fluid. They can mean a lot of different words. And so you can have the same Greek pronoun. It can mean something totally different. And so if we rendered that pronoun that way, here's how the sentence would read. See to it that no one misses the grace of God by a bitter root or through a bitter root. Here's what I'm telling you. Not only will bitterness alienate you from your spouse, it will alienate you from God. You'll miss the grace of God. You will be so angry and so bitter and so self-righteous and so wound up that you will miss the very grace that Jesus would want to extend to you. Aren't you grateful that Jesus came and showed us a better way? The only way in a world filled with broken, imperfect, sinful people where conflict is inevitable. God marched into that 
And he offered his one and only son on a cross so that whosoever, right, we just sang this, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's our Jesus. And that's why he's so worth following. So I'm going to pray. We're going to, I'm going to invite our team up. We're going to respond together. Hey, if you're in your living room today, uh, the way that you can you know, respond, there are a lot of ways you can respond, but you want to click um, on the link in the chat bar if you're on Facebook Live. If you're on the website, um, I'm not quite as sure of how that works, but hey, you're already on the website, right? So you should be able to, uh, there should be a number of other links that you can click. Uh, but if you need prayer or you want prayer with a pastor, you want a phone call, uh, you want to give, um, any way that you want to respond to God, you can do that online. Obviously, if you're here in the room, we're going to do that together, right? We're going to do it here and we're going to do it now. We're going to do it by being engaged in the words that we sing together. We're going to do it with just having hearts, you know, that are open to our Heavenly Father. And as you sing, I just want to invite you would, you, would you, would you be in touch with any roots of bitterness that may exist in any of your relationships? I mean, would you just become aware of that? Because the thing about a root, right, is a root feeds the tree. And so even one root of bitterness, that one, even if it was just one root, that one root, uh, if that tree draws moisture from that one root, it could poison if, that, if it's bad nutrients, right, that could poison the entire tree. And this is equally true with a root of bitterness. So would you confess that to God? Start with confessing it to God. And then if it's your mate or it's your spouse, confess that to them. Confess that, hey, I haven't ever prayed for you. You've never heard me pray. I want to learn how to do that. I'm not going to be good at it. I'm going to stink. I'm not going to do it very well. But I'm going to learn, right? Just whatever, you know. Yeah. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us. Help us be more like you, Lord Jesus. Help us forgive as you forgave. Help us accept as you accept. Help us forgive as you forgive. Help us be the men and the women that you created us to be when you died on the cross for us. Help us to live out of our identity of acceptance with you and not out of a well of rejection but your acceptance. I ask and pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.